Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books and Pop Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thanks so much for joining me once again. Today, my guest is journalist Michael Walker. Michael has written What You Want is in the Limo, On the Road with Led Zeppelin, Alice Cooper, and The Who in 1973, the year the 60s died and the modern rock star was born. Michael argues in the book that the conventional wisdom that holds that the rock and roll stars of the 1950s and 1960s, such as Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and the Beatles, laid down the template that has existed since then going forward uh, for rock stardom is not really accurate. Michael contends instead that in 1973, something wholly different came along that smashed those templates to bit and really laid down what we would call modern rock stardom. This is best exemplified by the ways that three bands lived and toured the country in 1973, these being the members of Led Zeppelin, Alice Cooper, and The Who. Michael's a great storyteller. He uh, kept me laughing and uh, engaged throughout our conversation, and I really enjoyed our hour or so we spoke. Hope you'll enjoy it, too. Here it is. Hey, Michael. Hey, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure. Um, I've really, really enjoyed What You Want is in the Libo, which was published by Spiegel and Grau in 2013. It's just been out, uh, doing really, really well. And um, the uh, book itself traces the the history or the, of 1973 through the eyes of three of the biggest bands in rock history, Led Zeppelin, The Who, and the Alice Cooper Band. And I just asked to start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, I've been a, been a, I guess, a, a journalist for, <laughs> you use the word advisedly, I guess, for, you know, for many years. And I, I used to, I've written for the New York Times and for Rolling Stone and worked in an editor of the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times. I've kind of been around the block. But um, this, uh, uh, the book I wrote previous to this was called Laurel Canyon, The Inside Story of Rock and Roll's Legendary Neighborhood. And that was, I live in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles. And I, I, uh, if you go into the Canyon Country Store in L.A., in, in Laurel Canyon, it's this great sort of hippie throwback. It looks like 1973 at that store, maybe even 1969. And there's forever people wandering around the store going, somebody should write a book about Laurel Canyon, the great music scene there in the, in the 60s and 70s. And so I, I did. <laughs> Nobody else had done it. So I finally wrote the book that everybody wanted to read, including myself. Right. And it was a real pleasure to do. And I learned so much about Los Angeles history and the history of the music uh, scene in L.A. Um, and that kind of piqued my interest in the early 70s because so much of the really great music came out of Laurel Canyon in the early 70s. And so for my next book, I wanted to investigate the year 1973, which is not as arbitrary as it seems. To me, 1973 was the year that, as the subtitle of the book says, the 60s did finally die in 1973. But it's a year that has one leg in the 60s still. There's still some of the, 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 you know, the ethics from the 60s are still there. But it's beginning to change. Um, the 70s are encroaching on it. That's the year of Watergate. That's the year of a lot of the creeping cynicism. That's the beginning of what will become in England the punk movement and, right. and the disco movement begin right. start creeping in around 73, 74, 75 but 73 I thought was just an incredibly watershed year because so many things happened that year so many great albums came out I mean Dark Side of the Mood by Pink Floyd came out um, Don't Shoot Me in 
the piano player and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. Those two albums came out in the same year, if you can believe that. Uh, Greetings from Asbury Park, uh, Springsteen, and um, The Wild Innocent and the East Street Shuffle came out yeah. in 1973. It's just an incredibly feckin' year for, for creativity and talent. And the amount of bands that were on the road that year is just yeah. astonishing. I mean, if you look at the itineraries, you lived in any medium-sized American and see a pretty much a world-class concert every, every week and so first at a top ticket price of usually six dollars and fifty cents i mean it was an amazing film. yeah you um you make the argument in the book that it's the the year that gives birth to modern rock stardom which i thought uh, at first glance i you know, sort of looked at looked you know twisted my head and thought hmm i don't know about that and then after you read the book i really was convinced um so how did you sort of settle on that that moment in time well, I, I think that there, there, were, there were rock stars before that, but I think there were more rock and roll stars. There was Elvis right. was a rock and roll star. Chuck Berry was a rock and roll star. The Beatles were rock and roll stars. The Rolling Stones were sort of straddled both worlds. But by 1973, was, there was a sort of new typology, and that was this guy uh, in a band, a singer or the whole band, that were uh, – two things happened. The money suddenly got really big. That was different in the early 70s. And in, in the late 60s, until uh, Peter Rudge, the Who's um, – uh, co-manager in 1973 and, and who also was managing their tour uh, and, many, and he managed the Stones 72 tour before that right. he just said when these record company guys in 1969 got a look at Woodstock and saw 300,000 kids you know where people camped out on the side of a hill in the rain and mud to listen to music it changed everything yeah. they realized that there was money to be made and, yeah. uh, and that changed the record business pretty much overnight and that was by 73 um, the money was getting big the contracts right. were getting big the managers were demanding more more and more and more. Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin's manager, changed the business by to having complete, giving Jimmy Page complete artistic, artistic control right. and um, making sure that more and more of the money that used to go to Millman went right into his pockets and the band's pockets. And, and frankly, they deserved it. I mean, that, that's what it is. But it meant that these guys were getting very, very wealthy or at least had the pretensions of being wealthy. And so they started traveling in private jets. Marijuana and LSD, which were kind of communal drugs, were replaced by cocaine, right. um, you know, the ultimate drug of status even back then. And a gram of cocaine in 1973 cost probably $150 and adjusted for inflation that's more like three or four hundred dollars right. so it was all of that and then and so and there, there was a divide happening between the the performer and the audience in the 60s mm-hmm. the performers and the audience mm-hmm. were there was this illusion that they were all mm-hmm. one they weren't i mean mm-hmm. if you look in the first crosby stills and nash album there's a picture of the three of them um in it uh, taking a big bear mountain in, in california outside of los angeles in the snow when they're these big fur jackets. Well, the photo shoot on the way up there, they, they rode up there in a limousine. You know? Right. So that was already right. happening. And the, that was, the limo was already there in 1969, but uh, it became pretty much, you know, uh, it, it was a contract requirement by 73. Right. The, you know, so the whole, it had shifted. And so that's what the rock star was. The rock star didn't give a damn about his audience as much. I mean, he liked them for them to show up and, and buy the records right. and, and clap madly. But it was it was a different experience. Well, what came to mind in reading in your book about uh, the descriptions of chrome pants and uh, all the other platform <laughs> shoes and all the other excesses is I was going to ask you is so how do you think we get from 1969 where arguably the biggest band rock band in America is Credence arguably where they all wear yeah. flannel and jeans to 1973 with the spectacles that were being put on the road and the obvious like you point out the huge distance between the star and the fan. It's a very good question. I try to address that in my book as much as I could. That the, the 
managers like Peter Rudge and managers like Shep Gordon for Alice Cooper really started pushing for more money. And, and it was being, it was being contractually insisted upon, you know, it was no longer that, you know, if you look at the Beatles rider for their first concert at Shea stadium, I mean, it's like the requirements are an electric tea kettle, um, right. water for four. I mean, literally water <laughs> bottle. It was bottled water. They didn't have it then, but electric tea kettle, fresh water, three, four cots, clean towels right and that was it that's like a county jail right. cell today you know <laughs> in, in contrast to um like the beatles like this this very spartan requirement in 1964 because people didn't know how to be rock stars yet um they were helping to invent it themselves actually but not to the level that, that came later but, but like by by the early 70s alice cooper's tour writer had um, all the the you know, there were specific liquors insisted upon. They had to have Cadillac or Lincoln limousines, only no lettering on the sides of them. Um, the Cadillacs had to be at their disposal 24 hours a day with the engines turning over in the winter so the cars wouldn't be cold when they got into them. I mean, it's all this kind of stuff. And Alice's requirement for his beverage rider was that um, all the Budweiser – it had to be Budweiser, which is the only beer because that's all he would drink. The Budweiser had to be in cans, not bottles. And if they were playing in Canada or they were playing in a state where there was only 3-2 beer rather than full strength beer available, they had to import it from another state or import it from the United States because he didn't like the taste of the beer in Canada. So if these guys were going to go on stage in Calgary and they, and they noticed apparently that David Lieber, their road manager, just pitched these incredible fits that they, they look on the can and said it was brewed in St. Louis. It was brewed in Calgary or something. That's it. We're not going. I don't know if that ever literally happened, but that's how bad it got. So yeah. those, those moments in Spinal Tap where they're backstage going, well, David, I have some problems with the backstage arrangements. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know they, they, those weren't, that was sort of invented in, on the 73 tours by these guys. The, uh, <laughs> the thing I was going to say too is the, uh, I keep keep thinking about all the the Spinal Tap uh, parallels, and we don't want to go down that road too far. But uh, you have quote Eddie Van Halen in the book where he says, "When I saw Spinal Tap, I didn't laugh; I wept because it was so true." Yeah, no, yeah, Eddie didn't find that movie funny at all. I mean, that was that was I thought it was hilarious that you know he said he sat through the whole thing, and didn't laugh once. He said, "We did all that stuff; all that stuff happened to us." So yeah, that that was a lot of stuff got invented. The other thing is on that tour, they're privating by for the first time by not the first time by private aircraft, but by you know private. Jet. I mean, right. uh, Led Zeppelin was that was the debut of the Starship, the notorious private plane. It was a seven Boeing seven twenty, which right. is a shortened version of the seven hundred seven, but still is an immense plane to carry fifteen or twenty people around. Um, you know, it had fake a fake fireplace and, and a circular waterbed and a long bar and a Hammond organ that, that, that John Paul Jones himself could play on the road. So that alone is just like you know, you, you fly into town in this, in this immense intercontinental jet with your name painted on the side. You know, your feet just never touch the ground. Bob Gruen, the, the photographer who traveled all those bands in 1973, said, had a great quote. He just told me from the book. He said, it's a lot more fun going through an airport with a band than going through an yeah. airport on your own. <laughs> because you have an entourage. And you, he said, you're a gang. You've got this guy, your tour manager's keeping everybody away. Right. And, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty great. And yeah, your book does such a good job of documenting that incredible shift. And I, I keep... Um, when I was reading the book, I kept thinking of the Super 8 footage I've seen of the Rolling Stones touring the American South in station wagons. And I know Zeppelin went on their first tour in a station wagon, too. And it's like such a, yeah. an amazing leap forward in, in money and power and all the other things that came with the having your name on the side of a plane. And it just begs what the question of what a rock star is. You know, before it was you, – you, most of these guys got in it as – Rudge said, "Got in it uh, for to your Bob Bruin." Actually, said, everybody got into it in the sixties. Really, to have a good time and, and to get a girl and have a drink or two. You know, it really wasn't anything beyond that. Now it had become a you know sort of a lifestyle 
uh, acquisition and that you were that you know you were living in a mansion you were you were, and you were gradually separating yourself from your audience and that's what ultimately killed these guys and that's why punk came along because they just you know the barriers hit the stages got higher you know the the festival seating got more and more right. dangerous until it finally blew up on the who in 1979 right. or 77 i can't remember which tour that was but uh where all those people were killed in cincinnati right. you know Oh, that was they were they were abusing their audiences and yeah. the audiences were I remember going to those concerts in, in festival seating in the seventies and and they were dangerous I mean they still still do it but I mean there was uh, it was a lot more it was a, much more of a free for all because when you walked into those halls back in the seventies the pot smoke was so thick every one of them and it was just amazing you cut it with a knife you know the drug use was completely open the cops just would give up no one even tried you know people snorting crystal meth and doing also i remember the drug use of those things was just out of control right. right and now you go to a concert and it's actually remarkable when you smell pot smoke you look around and you're like what someone's smoking yeah, pot what, what happened because yeah. you're not even allowed to smoke in the arenas anymore yeah also just also cigarette smoke i mean those things were just clouds right. of, uh, you, you were definitely you know you, you when you walked into those halls you realized it was you were entering an environment that was a little bit reckless and a little bit dangerous and that of course was part of the appeal right. i mean that's what made it cool i mean right was it was and they turned the lights out and it was just so loud and these guys and, and the lighting and also the staging was catching up with what was going on and that's where alice cooper plays right. an absolutely crucial role and they've never really been given credit for it and i really wanted to make sure they got it in this book was that they took out on the road with them a, st- a stage that was built spec to go into the winter garden theater or the palace theater in new york <laughs> and, that, and that didn't happen it was a publicity stunt that failed well let's talk about alice cooper because i think um one of the real strengths of your book is that you really tell the Cooper story from beginning to end, and there's a, a lot of twists and turns there with Frank Zappa involved, because I, I think people probably know the story of The Who and Led Zeppelin a little bit better. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, your um, great work you did in bringing Cooper's uh, Road to Stardom to light? Uh, well, thank you for that. I, I found this, the story of the band absolutely fascinating, because they were these guys that they were – five guys, um, and Alice Cooper's real name is Vince Fernier, and they were variously from – Michigan, Ohio, and ultimately they all kind of ended up in, um, in Phoenix at the same high school, most of them, Camelback High. Um, and, uh, and they formed essentially as a parent band. They were like for just, they kind of hung in there and they stayed with it and they moved to Los Angeles, getting nowhere. And they were sort of, a, they, were, they were great fans of Pink Floyd, the early Pink Floyd. And so they formed, they, had, they called themselves various things and they were, they were just, of course, going broke along with everybody else. But they had a, they, they had a real attitude. They were they were to go on stage like and play the theme to the Patty Duke show. Patty Duke show would be their first song. They were right. great satirists way before the time. And that's what caught the eye of Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa essentially assigned them as a novelty act, and they recorded their first album was Zappa in in one day. I mean, one session they recorded the whole thing for you. And of course, it did no business. And then they did a follow up, which did no business. And they were absolutely broke and desperate. And at the same time, uh, Shep Gordon, their manager, who was just this guy, essentially, he had moved out to, to L.A. with his uh, business partner, Joey Greenberg. And they were, as Shep told me, they were living at the landmark of this great rock and roll hotel. It's where Janis Joplin eventually would overdose while she was recording uh, Pearl, her last album. But he said they moved in there, and they, he said, what were you doing? He said, well, we were selling things. <laughs> he, said, he said, some of the things we were selling were to people like Janis Joplin and Jimi right. Hendrix lived at the hotel. And he said, Hendrix, uh, apparently, Hendrix said to them, um, well, well, what are you guys doing when you're not selling us?" things and they said well, well they said well, why don't you become rock managers and he said well we're, we can't be rock hey come on you guys are jewish come on just become managers go yeah. do this <laughs> so that's how it happened it was very serendipitous and they and they, they were looking for a band to manage which they didn't know how to do and uh they were in a, a boutique on sunset i think it was sunset boulevard 
and they were talking to the manager and uh, it was a girl behind the counter uh, named Cindy Smith and she uh, she said I heard you guys they were talking they're looking for management she, she said well my brother's in a band and they said well that's good he said and Frank Zappa wants to sign them for $6,000 advance but they need they need a manager before they could do it so yeah that's how those guys instantly became managers oh, yeah. we'll, we'll take care of that well sure they, they told him they managed the left bank which had that, that his song Go walk, walk Away Renee which was a complete fabrication right <laughs> so they just basically bluffed their way into this thing but they all got they were all mutually incompetent Cooper and Shep Gordon Greenberg um, they signed in the band, mostly Shep and Alice, sort of mapped out this incredible plan that they were going to use negative publicity, um, they were pretend they were transvestites, they were going to do anything to get attention, um, rather than just straight up rock and roll things. So they, they were, and, and they were becoming very good musicians, credible musicians. And so it was this incredibly long So they developed this kind of gory stage show. You know, um, Alice was, you know, would, would, they, would, they would appear like one night completely under a white sheet. So well, the interesting, interesting thing about Alice Cooper was that they, they you know, they were they were they basically were the LA's most hated band. I mean, they were they were they were notorious for like clearing auditoriums with their repertoire. I mean, their their the first they used to open their shows with the, the theme from the Patty Duke show. So these guys were ironists and and performers at a time when everyone was like dead cool. I mean, it was right. the, the, that was when the folk rock scene was huge in Los Angeles. That's when the birds were big, <laughs> and these guys are going on stage, you know. Uh, in drag and, and everything else, just and then people just did not know what to make of them. They were a no, notorious band in Los Angeles, and so when they hooked up with Chef Gordon, their manager, they decided to sort of maximize that. But uh, that came before that they came to the attention of Frank Zappa because of their reputation. And Frank Zappa was very much an iconoclast, and he loved sticking it in the nose and you know and sticking it in the face of. He, he just loved sending out the record business and, and and conventions in general. So he recorded their first album it was called Pretties for You. Um, they did it in one day, you know, and uh, and it suffered for that. Consequently, it didn't sell. Uh, they recorded a follow up called Easy Action, but even, apparently did even less business. And they were, you know, they were pretty much at their wits' end. Uh, so anyway, they were desperate. And so Shep, I mean, the story said, well, "Let me tell you how I couldn't even get this band arrested." And so what they, he did was he had Cindy Smith, who was the the girl from uh, that the, the, was a seamstress, who was uh, Neil Smith, the drummer's sister. He just, she designed all their stage costumes. So that also set them apart from other bands who just played in street clothes. They played in costumes. To them. You know, they were really bring a theatrical element to rock and roll, which had hitherto not existed at all. They were right. really the pioneers in that. She, he told her to design them uh, see-through uh, stage costumes, just make made out of plastic, um, and so she did. She made them with these stage costumes, so you could see everything. And Shep's plan was to put him on stage at a club on the Sunset Strip and then wait about 15 minutes and call the police expressing outrage that these guys were playing nude on stage and to get them busted so they get some publicity. That's how desperate they were. So this all goes according to plan. The costumes are made. The band takes to the place on stage. Shep goes backstage to a pay phone, calls the Los Angeles County Sheriff's going, I just want to tell you I'm outraged. There's this band with – by then they were called Alice Cooper. There's this band with a girl's name and they're, they're dressed like women. Oh, by the way, they're wearing see-through costumes. I want this stuff immediately. You know, rang, rang. So – so the cops come. But he said between the time he called and the cops came, their body heat had steamed up the costumes and you couldn't see through them anymore. So there was no crime to be there was no crime that they could be busted for. So the cops didn't arrest them. He said Shep said could Shep Gordon just said to me, he goes, We literally could not get arrested. He said he said we left town the next day, you know. So they just put their they cast their fortunes to the wind. They were they were all over the all over the place. Um uh, you know, they were touring all over the country, you know, making no money. Uh, they had a very explosive stage show. But finally, they got a break, such as it was. They were playing in a, at a festival in Toronto. 
So they're playing this, this festival in Toronto, and a chicken is thrown on stage. I'm not entirely sure how it got on stage. Um, it, uh, it, it usually goes that somebody randomly threw a chicken on stage, but it begs the question, what in the world is a chicken doing anywhere near a stage at a, at a pop festival in Toronto? So um, I know that the, Alice, they used to close their shows, and they were touring, but they, they would steal pillows from the hotels and then break them apart on stage and have feathers flying everywhere. Right. And there may have been, there may have been some live chickens on the Alice Cooper stage at some point, but I can't verify that. But a chicken presents itself to Alice on stage. And Alice, as he always told the story, was that he honestly thought chickens could fly. And so he threw it back into the audience. And what happened was, of course, the chicken you know, flapped its wings, landed in the front rows, and the audience just tore it apart. But the next day, the story went out that in, in various guises that Alice Cooper had bitten the head off a chicken, drank the blood, I mean, you fill in the blanks, all this other stuff. So this gets back to Frank Zappa, and Frank Zappa calls him and said, supposedly, he said, is this true? And they said, well, no, I mean, the audience did it. And he goes, well, whatever you do, don't say anything right. about it. Right. You know, let the myth build. And that's where they, 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 and they built off of that. They never let that story die. They tried to amplify it. And by the time they were touring in 73, Alice, you know, a cop in the South, they went. Like, they they came to this hotel. Where they went to arrest him because there was a rumor that he was killing kittens on stage, and they weren't going to let him go on that night. And he, and Alice, the cops said to me, "All right, now you're going to have to stop this show because we're not going to have that sort of thing happening in our town." He goes. And he goes. And Alice and he said, "Well, why?" He said, "Well, because you, we heard that you y'all killed chickens. You killed kittens on stage with a hammer." Now he thought for a minute, took a swig of his butter, and he goes, "You know," he said, "It's not a bad idea, but I didn't think of it." <laughs> So they, they really played it big that way. And that really helped. And that's, that, that, that stage show just got more and more violent and more and more. They started out, the whole thing was, a, it, was it was based on a morality play in which it was a, it had a, you know, it, it had a libretto. I mean, it did have a story. It was like right. an Alice was this villain and that he committed bad, did bad things. And the songs that he sang illustrated the bad things. And then him, then they put him in an electric chair. Then they, by the only about babies tour, they had this enormous guillotine rigged up that a magician ran. It was an illusion, of course. It cut his head off, and so that was he was always punished for his misdeeds at the end of the show. Then reborn in white, he would sing some great rock song, and everyone would go home happy. The thing is that the audience was in on this joke. Nobody was really buying this in their audience. Right. You know, the, 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 the teenagers got it that it was a put on. But it was for the, it was for everybody else. This this terrible negative publicity. Right. And Chef Gordon told me he said my goal was that if any kid at the breakfast table mentioned anything about Alice Cooper, his parent would grab him by the scruff of the neck. If you ever bring up that man's name in this house again, you're grounded for a year. He said that's the publicity he wanted because he then he then they're outlaws. Then he then he knew the kids would love them, and it worked. It really worked. And what they never get credit for is they were a good band. Yeah, they, they do get credit for it sometimes, but they were a really tight rock and roll band. They were they were limited. You know, they weren't the greatest musicians right. in the world, but they did great stuff. I, I was going to ask you the next question about Bob Ezrin. I was going to—I think I know your answer, but I'll let you expound upon it anyway. I think a lot of people, if you ask them about Bob Ezrin and Alice Cooper, they say, "Well, you know, Ezrin made that band." Uh, Ezrin did uh, was very, very influential in helping that band. He was the editor they needed. Alice always said he was our George Martin. He was right. like the fifth Beatle. He was the guy that took them seriously enough to realize that there was something there because. Uh, they ended up with Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin wasn't even a record producer. He was working for a producer in Canada named uh, Jack Nicholson, who was the Guess Who's producer. And so Jeff Gordon wanted the band produced by somebody, and so he really zeroed in on going to Jack Richardson, trying to get Jack Richardson to sign the band and produce their first record, their first, you know, after their first failed records with Zappa. And I said, why in the world are you going to Jack 
the Jack Richardson, why go all the way to Canada? He goes, he goes, well, at the time, the Guess Who were a big hit-making band. He thought it would just be great, crazy publicity again if he could get the producer of some of the most mainstream music to produce his band. So already he's already working that angle. Richards would have nothing to do with them. And so he finally dispatched his assistant to make them go away. And his assistant was Bob Ezrin, who had never produced a record before. And they kept and harangued and harangued Bob Ezrin until he finally went to see him um, in New York at Steve Paul's scene or one of those little clubs that were big in the early 70s mm-hmm. in New York, late 60s. And he has this epiphany that they can become stars. And he went backstage and said, I think you guys can become stars. And he was a classically trained musician, didn't really know anything about record production. He said, he, and they were given a stipend from Warner Brothers, which had bought their contracts from Zappa to do, they had a budget to do like two or three songs or six, you know, hardly anything. But, and if they, if they heard potential for a hit in one of those songs, They'd signed them, let them do a record, and so they woodshedded in. You know, at their, by this time they're living in this awful farmhouse outside of Pontiac, Michigan, and uh, you know they woodshed and woodshed and worked and worked and worked, and uh, they went to Chicago for I think six weeks and recorded what became "Love It to Death," uh, the album with the song "I'm 18," which was their first hit. And that song was, in its original version, like something like six or seven meandering minutes long, and Bob Ezrin edited it down to two minutes and 34 seconds. Right. And he said the first time he heard it, he knew it was a hit. He thought it was called I'm Edgy, because that's what he thought Alice was saying. Alice was saying, I'm 18. So that was the joke of that. But it worked. It made it onto the charts, and they greenlit the rest of the record. And then from there, they did Killer, which was a really great rock and roll album. Uh, right. It's a classic. Then, of course, School's Out. School's Out was their first big breakthrough hit, monster record. And on the heels of that came Billion Dollar Babies, right. which was released in 73. And that was the culmination of everything they'd been working for. And it must have seemed like a thousand years, but it was only five years. But it was five years of absolutely grueling work that got them there. And you've got these wonderful accounts of, well, I, I, wonderful might be one word to describe it, uh, <laughs> remarkable accounts of how that album is made. And it's just well, I, I really do love that album. And to think about the way that it was made and the way it sounds, it's just unbelievable to me that they, they made it under that conditions. Well, yeah, they recorded. By this time, Chef Gordon moved them into an actual mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut. It was this, this huge place. It's called the Galassi Estate. And it was up. Their neighbors were like Nelson Rockefeller and stuff like that. It was, it was in Greenwich. It was this, you know, stockbroker land. It was this big mansion they all had their, they all had private bedrooms and they were living they've been living together their entire careers now they're living in this mansion but and so they recorded some of the bed tracks in the in the, what had been the ballroom to this mansion which was this immense immense ballroom and they had a fireplace that went in you could park a buick in i mean it was just gigantic but they they rehearsed the started the stage show and started recording they recorded the the, the underlying tracks for elected a couple of the big songs right. the billion dollar babies and things like that but they were having trouble because they uh, their lead guitar player glenn buxton um, was Alice was already a pretty bad alcoholic. There was a substance abuse problem there. But Glenn Buxton, the lead guitar player, Alice could still function. He was a classic <laughs> functioning alcoholic. He got the job done. Glenn Buxton, their lead guitar player, was falling farther and farther behind. Right. He probably doesn't even play on Billion Dollar Babies. He maybe plays on a couple tracks, maybe. But uh, he had already really, he was sort of, he was, he was um, a divisive role in the band at that point because he'd ceased to function and he wasn't keeping up with them anymore so they were having problems in that regard they're all exhausted they've just been David David Dunaway their bass player says they've been driven into the ground by then you know just from the sheer amount of road work and and stuff remember these guys are on the road all year long and then they take three weeks off to record another album then it's right back on the road again I mean granted you're in your 20s you have stamina and it's a lot of fun but it just just wore these guys out so by the time they hit that mansion they were pretty tired of each other, and they were just just tired in general. 
The, uh, you know, in contrast to, to Alice Cooper, who I think they really peaked in 1973 with billion dollar babies. That was really their, their, their highest point. Uh, Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. and the Who were both well established artists. And yet, I think as you point out in the book really, really well, they took real chances with Quadrophenia. You know, if I was managing them, you might say to them, hmm, you know, this is, this is risky to do this, this type of album in this environment. Well, Pete Townsend was absolutely consumed with worrying that the band was going, he was worried that they were becoming irrelevant, that they would, they had to adapt to make it through the 70s. You know, he wanted them to continue. I mean, he had very mixed feelings about the band. He wanted to leave it. He wanted to do it. You know, he he was he was always very conflicted about the, uh, the band and his role in it and what they were doing. And, you know, it was, it was and but he thought what his plan was, he said, OK, what we need to do is we need to go. You know, they've been around a long time. They've been around since 63 at right. that point. They've been around 10 years. So that's an eternity. In the, in the, and he was watching things change. He knew something was coming. He guessed wrong. What was coming was punk. But he thought it was going to be something else. But he wanted the band to adapt and change. So what they did was he wrote his second full-length rock opera after Tommy uh, Quadrophenia. And it essentially, is, it's a, Quadrophenia is a biopic of the Who. I mean, it's a basic of their early days. He took them back to the days of the mods and rockers and wrote an opera about you know a guy named Jimmy who was this confused uh, mod. And uh, basically, it's really kind of a day. He has a bad week and ends up at the end of the week sitting on a rock in, in the middle of the ocean or in the middle of the sea, sort of contemplating his existence and whether he's going to live or he's going to die. So it was all sort of an allegory for the early who. But he wanted, he said, to tie all that story up, wrap it up and put it away, and then they can move forward. Well, it didn't work out that way. Audiences in the United States especially didn't get it. They didn't like it. They were, you know, when they, when they were playing it on stage, he felt Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey were giving these long, long preambles to the song, setting up the story. And all people wanted to do was hear Won't Get Fooled Again and right. See Me, Feel Me from Tommy. So in that regard, and, and it just, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a difficult story for people to master. Um, it didn't have the visceral simplistic impact of Tommy, which is a very, you know, which is a, is a story everybody can get. Quadrophenia was a piece of anthropology, essentially, and right. it just it just wasn't working. In retrospect, of course, it's a great album. It's one of the, you know, it's a classic. But it was a big risk that they were taking. You're absolutely right, right that this was, you know, there were there were easier things that he could have done. But it also is the last time they really rolled the dice because right. the, the reception was lukewarm to the album at the time. The tour didn't really work, um, so it was great. It was a great disappointment for Townsend at right. And uh, you know, if I was Peter Cole and uh, the, the tracks were starting to be worked up for Houses of the Holy, and you're starting to do some James Brown funk and uh, other other diversions there, I would have probably said, uh, you know, we need more uh, more uh, um, more whole lot of love and less, uh, you know. Peter, Paul, and Mary, or whatever you guys are trying to do now. It was really, a, I think, a real, you point out, a real departure. Uh, Houses of the Holy? Yes. Oh, yeah. It was a, that was, uh, I love that album. It's a, it's, a, it's a really idiosyncratic album. And it was really them kind of letting their hair down, so to speak, because they, they had, they, Jimmy Page had such a bad time with the rock critics. People just don't know how uncool Led Zeppelin was back in the early right. 70s. But they, the, the Rolling Stone said they should rename themselves Limp Blimp. I mean, it was just, they were, they were abused by the press constantly. And that's why the fourth Zeppelin album has no liner notes, there's no albums, there's no title for the band. We had a, it was an incredibly pretentious thing to do, but, you know, everybody adopts a symbol rather than their names to be shown on the album. He just right. wanted the music, the music to speak for itself, which is, you know, the fantasy of every, you know, sullen musician that uh, has been misunderstood. But, I mean, that was an absolutely brilliant album, the fourth album. It was, it was, it was just their masterpiece. There's just, there's just not they didn't put a foot wrong that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so once, and that actually did get some, uh, Rolling Stone was actually nice for that album. but the only one they recorded that they were nice to, but, uh, um, but it was, it really was an album that, um, that, 
they, they'd done their masterpiece, and I think they knew it. And so for this next album, they really just had some fun. And so that's why Houses of the Holy, I think, is just such a great record. It really, really is in sync with the times. It's just, it's uh, the early 70s, even though we were in the middle of, the United States was mired in stagflation and Watergate was going on. If you were 16 years old, that was just noise. <laughs> you know, you and your friends were awesome. It was summertime, and that album came out in the spring. And uh, it just, I just remember hearing that all, all over that summer when I was when I was a teenager and, and how buoyant and, and lifting it was and the lyrics were ridiculous you know some of Robert Plant's crazy hippie dippy lyrics but right. it is such a fun album and uh, they recorded it at Mick Jagger's country house outside of London Stargroves um, Eddie Kramer the engineer uh, photographed parts of it and there's a picture in my book of these guys it's this great picture of Robert Plant and Jimmy Page dancing with each other on the lawn of this beautiful mansion, and because uh, Eddie Kramer has opened the, the mobile truck with its recording the, the album, is doing a playback of Dancing Days, the great song that opens the record. And they know they just recorded this great right. classic song. So yeah, I, I, I think the band's exuberance and, 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 and they, they really were on top of the world, and I think it was completely conferred in that album and on their audience. Well, and your, your observation about Plant's lyrics is is well taken because um i think one thing you can definitely contrast with his peace and love lyrics is the the, the true sense of menace that surrounded peter grant oh, yeah. and cole and all of those that those tours as you point out were incredibly violent incredibly debaucherous i mean there's no other word for it yeah uh they um i one of the guys in my book was an executive at atlantic records and his job was essentially just artist relations he was he was there there to kind of smooth things over for the band via the label right and, you know, he just said, look, he said Led Zeppelin was an organization run by thugs. You know, they were thugs. They ran it like thugs. Right. And so it was it was a it was a very menacing place. I found a guy named uh, Rusty Brichet who mixed sound for all of their concerts starting in 1971, I think. But he mixed the sound for every single concert they did the rest of their careers. They found this guy in Dallas and he had founded a company called Shoko and they rented, which was renting. They were renting big PA systems because right. people back in the day. Even Led Zeppelin, even the Rolling Stones, and really until about 72 and 73, it's another thing these tours changed, you didn't travel with your own sound and lights. You rented those from the promoter, and the promoter made a fortune renting really bad sound systems and bad lighting systems. But and that's when these guys hit Dallas, where Rusty Brochet and his partners had started Shoko. Zeppelin just simply said, "You know what? This PA is coming with us now, and so are you." <laughs> so, and that was it. He makes every every last concert they ever did, including the very last shows in, in Germany in uh, 1980, whatever it was, I guess 80. Yeah. But he said to me also, he said it was a very very tense gig. He said there was immense pressure for things to go well from Peter Grant, who was a very scary individual, but and a very effective manager. Oh well, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no question. He he was effective. Um, your, your epilogue of your book observes the uh, the problems in 1977 that took place at uh, in San Francisco with Bill Graham's people, where one of, uh, if I remember the story correctly, one of uh, Led Zeppelin's roadie beats up um, a, a child. If I remember the story correctly, no. This here's what happened. It's it's a little more complicated than that. One of it was Bill Graham, the famous rock promoter impresario was promoting that concert and it was right. in uh it was actually in oakland it was uh i think it was called a day on the green it was a series of and it was a big outdoor show right um during a break and sometime well while Zeppelin was on stage they were playing i think for two days there and the, during the first show uh during a break john bond was backstage and while he was backstage he noticed that um, um uh peter grant's young son uh, right. was backstage and there was a guy one of phil graham's you know employees 
was taking the, the, the signs off the dressing room doors that said Led Zeppelin, and, and, and this kid wanted one of them. And the guy said, no, they, we have to put these up for the next show. You can't have it. He didn't know who he was. And apparently uh, there may have been a little bit of tug of war with the sign. The guy took it back, but the guy didn't hit by no way stretch imagine this guy actually hit this child. It was, there was some sort of physical contact between them. Right. Apparently, I don't even know that for sure, but it was apparently nothing. There was no striking of this child or anything like that. But anyway, uh, Bonzo, their drummer, witnesses this, or, they're, they're, or the boy tells him that this guy has just hit him or something. And so Bonzo walks over to this guy and kicks him in the crotch and just sends him to the floor and then walks back on stage to start playing again. And the word gets back to Peter Grant that somebody's hit his kid. And uh, so right, he right. goes to – so this guy immediately goes into hiding backstage somewhere because they're out for him. So Graham, Bill Graham is tricked into bringing this guy forward because because Peter Grant wants to just – he said, I just want to talk to this man. And Bill said, okay, I, you have to, I have to have your word. Nothing's going to happen. He goes, no, no. No problem. I just need to see this man and get this settled. Um, he said, all right. So Bill Graham puts him in a trailer backstage, and so and they introduce each other. And what they do is, you know, Peter Grant and his minions, Richard Cole, a couple other guys, uh, drag this guy, Greg Bill Graham, out of the trailer, lock the door, and start beating this guy. Practically, this guy was being beaten so bad that he thought he was going to die. And somehow he reserved. He, he somehow escaped. Um, he just he used his last energy to escape. But he, didn't, he was in the hospital. So it was a very bad scene. And the oh, next right. day... They um, Zeppelin let them let Bill Graham know through their attorney that they wouldn't go on stage and let this guy sign a letter of identification that you know et cetera et cetera, and so Bill Graham signed it because it was he checked with his lawyers and he, he, he you know anyway they got him on stage the next day it was very tense and then Bill Graham meanwhile had 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 arranged for the Oakland police to arrest. Richard Cole, Peter Grant, and uh, John Bonham uh, after the concert that day. And they were, or the next day before they left town. Right. And then right after that, their next show is in New Orleans uh, after they finally got these guys sprung on bail and stuff. Uh, and in New Orleans, they called Robert Plant to the hotel desk and they checked in. And, and what he was given the news that his son, his son had died suddenly. Of a virus. Right. So that was, that was the last time Zeppelin played the United States was that show in Oakland. Yeah, the um, it's it's I think a good way to kind of bring the book to the end because I think um, you know of course the book always leaves the the question um, or this book definitely leaves the question in your mind of the cost that was paid for the for the way they lived and certainly there there was a high price to some extent and uh, for all of them. Well, yeah, they all. Um, if you look, if you look at the future, what 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 played out for these bands as the seventies rolled on, it didn't go well. I mean, first of all, um, the Who never really regained their creative. You know, Mojo. After right. that, they made they made perfectly nice albums, and they continued touring. They still made money hand over fist. But um, you know, Keith Moon was not doing well. Right. Um, he was he was he was drinking too much, and he was uh, he was forever out of money. He was spending all his money, and they and he eventually he was just careless, and he uh, he overdosed on the drug. I think that was weeding him from alcohol. Right. Um, so he goes, and they're and they're you know in the, in the middle of a tour, and uh, you know uh, then they have the problem with the, a couple of years later where they're playing in Cincinnati at Three River Stadium, and uh, the, you know I think it was I don't know ten or twelve maybe even more fans were asphyxiated right. by a rush of people to the door. I mean so that wasn't good for them. John Bonham, you know, uh, their Zeppelin's about to go back on bring come back to the United States for the first time after this debacle in Oakland. They, and they've done a limited tour of Europe to kind of get their feet under them. They had a new album come out called uh, In Through the Outdoor, and they were going to just try to come back to the United States and tour again after all this this, this madness. And, of course, he ended up in the band rehearsal at Jimmy Page's house drinking yeah. what turned out to be more or less a liter of vodka over six hours. 
and uh, you know vomited in his sleep and choked to death. Yeah. And so he's gone. Um, so that's the end of Led Zeppelin. Alice Cooper didn't even make it out of 1974. Right. I mean, they they were at you know they. The problem with Alice Cooper was there was Alice Cooper the star, and then the rest of the band was also known as Alice right. Cooper, and and they had made this sort of Mephistophelian deal with the devil, which was they agreed to name Alice Alice and then push him out front as the frontman so it would be easier to promote the band. Right. Alice, there, in, in turn, he would do all the press, he would take on all the publicity work, and they would all still cut share. They, they cut everything five ways. It was an even split. Right. But they were, they were getting lost in the shuffle. And they knew it. They were coming in a back, backup band, and they really resented it. Right. And that blew them. So they broke up. And then Alice went on to become you know, a, a fairly successful um, solo star. But that was the end of the, the, those guys. And they were very talented guys. Right. But none of, nobody got out alive from that year. I mean, that really was an important year in that regard. Well, our traditional last question on the podcast is about your future projects. What are you working on now, Michael? What can we look for you in the future? Uh, I have a couple film projects that are, I, I write, I do screenplays as well. I've got a couple of those things in development. One of them is about uh, the world of uh, 20th Century Fox is doing, it's about the world of cargo pilots. It's called Freight Dogs. Freight Dogs, it was based on a magazine story I wrote a few years ago, but cargo pilots are like the, the rock and roll guys. There's commercial airline pilots and there's cargo right. pilots. And the cargo, it's like, you know, if, uh, if you go back to Animal House, the cargo pilots are the Deltas, you know, <laughs> uh, so to speak. Because they, uh, as one way, one guy told me, he said, "Look, the airline property, the regular airline pilots, all primitive property. Goes, We're not. It's a whole different culture. <laughs> so these guys fly around in these old bombed-out airplanes. A lot of them are old hand-me-downs, and you know they're 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 really and they're the best pilots in the world because the equipment they fly is so unreliable. So it's a really fun look into their what they're doing in their world." Um, I'm also well. That's yeah. That's it. That's really what I'm doing for right now. Well, how can people reach out to you and find you on Twitter? Well, it's uh, my Twitter feed is mww walker. Okay. On Twitter, um, you can get me there. Uh, if you're if you belong to Goodreads, I'm a Goodreads author. Goodreads is kind of like the Facebook for for uh, for for reading, and it's a, it's a great website. So right. you can get to me, and you can reach me through Twitter. You can reach me. I have a, I have a web address at uh, an email that I can. If people want to talk, they can get to, get a hold of me through that. Uh, where else can you find me? I guess those two places are the best places if you okay. want if you want to find out more. Um, but I uh, I uh, certainly welcome people. I, I hope a lot of people have written very nice reviews online on Amazon and Goodreads and things like this about how much they enjoyed the book. And these a lot of these are people of, that weren't around in 1973. And it was a really I think it's a really it's a fun it's a fun read and it's a fun way to kind of on uh, on a pretty fast trip back in time to see what it was really like at that time. That's really what I wanted to capture is just sort of the essence of what it was like in the early 70s because it really was a time that hasn't been repeated since. Right. Now, I um, and I wanted to say, too, that, I, uh, that one of the nice things about doing this podcast and blogging about these books is that I get to choose the books. And so when I say that I really, really enjoyed this book, it means that I really did enjoy the book. <laughs> right. I really highly recommend this uh, oh, thank you. This book. Uh, great read. Um, as I said in the uh, pre-interview, if I were to write a blurb for this book, I'd call it uh, Hammer of the Gods on Steroids. And anyone who's in the know about rock biography should know that is the highest compliment you can pay. It's excellent. And Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, sir. It was great to be on the show. Okay. Enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Michael. Good. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Michael Walker about his book, What You Want is in the Limo, which was published by Spiegel and Grau in 2013. Thanks for listening, and please tune in next time for another episode of New Books in Popular Music.